This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Justice Jean Dubofsky was the first woman and the youngest person to sit on the state's Supreme Court. She went on to successfully argue a landmark civil rights case before the U.S. Supreme Court. That case, dealing with gay rights, was decided 20 years ago now. Dubofsky is the subject of a new biography called Appealing for Justice. She and her biographer, Sue Casey, are here. Casey is a former Denver City Councilwoman. Welcome to both. Thanks, Thank you. So, Jean, a distinguished list of achievements, as we've heard, but I want to start with an award you won back in 1960, your senior year in high school, what was called a Homemaker Award. Tell us about this. Well, it was the Betty Crocker All-American Homemaker of Tomorrow. It was a national competition, and you had to take a written test. I didn't know much about cooking, but I was pretty good at taking standardized tests. And then a lot of people interviewed you, and each state had a winner. And I was the winner for Kansas, which is where I grew up and went to high school. And then I became the winner for the United States, which was, to me, absolutely astounding. There's a picture in the book with me holding my hands with long white gloves on over my mouth, and my eyes are about as big as anyone could imagine. I was so startled. Included in the book are some of the multiple choice questions you had to answer to win this Betty Crocker Homemaker of Tomorrow competition. Um, Susie finds a rat in the attic. What should she do? A, scream and run. B, call her husband at work. C, put the rat in a bag. What was the right answer to that question? Do you remember? No. (laughs) You're having a dinner party and you notice your husband has a spot on his tie. What do you do? A, point and laugh. B, quietly let him know. C, ignore it because you can't do anything about it. What was the right answer there? Well, probably both of them would have been C, wouldn't you think? I see. Put the rat in the bag. Ignore it because you can't do anything about it. Sue, the reason I bring this up for starters is that this actually helped launch the justice's career. Briefly, how does a homemaker award put her in the right circles? Well, you know, it it, it helped launch a, launch a career, but it also um, provides kind of a sense of the journey of women and what it was like in the 50s and 60s when that was um, a pretty cool thing to do is to take the Betty Crocker uh, test. And that's because that's what women did back then. Um, but it helped launch her career um, in many ways. And I think primarily it exposed her to a world outside of Topeka and made connections for her that lasted a lifetime. What were some of those connections? Well, she went uh, – she was in D.C., um, for the big to-do, the big gala. She was at the White House to meet Mamie Eisenhower. She met Richard Nixon. She had to talk to the members of the press when she won this national award. She met uh, governors and senators, and they um, were taken with her uh, and wanted uh, to give her opportunities. And those opportunities led her back to the Hill, uh, to work for one senator, and then eventually to work for Walter Mondale. And she got a scholarship and landed at some pretty prestigious schools. Yeah. Um, scholarships, schools. Um, the one of the schools, um, very prestigious, uh, wasn't exactly the finest time in her life. Yeah, let's talk about that. So undergrad uh, justice at Stanford, then you went to Harvard for law school, right, in 1964. 
Yes. And as it's described in the book, it was a, a really difficult experience. What, pray tell, was Ladies' Day at Harvard? I, I couldn't believe it when I read this. Well, it was the first class of the first day in law school, a property professor who was the model uh, for the paper chase professor. This is the film and I think the book as well, right? Yes. Yeah. And he announced that the four women in our section of 125 were not to volunteer, nor would we be called on. And, of course, law school is sort of a Socratic method kind of teaching. That, that call and response. And we would not speak until Ladies' Day. Ladies' Day was near the end of the school year. It was the least important uh, topic of the year. And he always chose the same topic for Ladies' Day. So the few women in the class ahead of us handed down the questions so we knew what the answers were. And we sat up in front of the class, and that was Ladies' Day. So one day in taking this class is when women in the class could speak up. That's what That's you're right. saying. Why didn't you leave? Well, I left that class a lot. There were a lot of days I sat outside and just took notes because I really found it uncomfortable to be in that classroom. You know, that's a good question, though, Ryan, because most of the story that I uh, found about Harvard Law was not from Jean because she said, you know, it was hard, but but from other people like Justice Mary Malarkey. And uh, who also asked, sat on the state Supreme Court. Yes, and I asked her why didn't she leave as I asked Jean because it's a, it's a question we all – would think. And what they both said and others that I interviewed was, where would we go? That was the best law school in the country. And if it was that way there, um, it was representative of what was going on at the time in the country. Women just weren't perceived of, allowed to be in those uh, top professions. And yet you got your law degree and Obviously had a very successful career in the law, as we'll explore. But how would you say, Justice, that that era shaped you? Oh, I think it makes you well aware of how difficult things can be. But most importantly, it taught me that you always have to work harder than anyone else. Because if you're one of a very few women in any given situation, you don't dare make a mistake. And, Gosh, that sounds exhausting to me. Well, it is in some respects, but you have to be so careful because if you're not prepared to do something and don't do it very well, everyone will remember and then the women who might come behind you will suffer because, oh, she was a woman who didn't do that very well. A lot of pressure, in other words. Yes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the story of the first woman on the state Supreme Court who would go on to successfully argue a landmark civil rights case before the U.S. Supreme Court. That's Jean Dubofsky. Uh, her story is told in the new book, Appealing for Justice, One Colorado Lawyer, Four Decades, and the landmark gay rights case, Romer versus Evans. Her biographer is Susan Casey, former city councilwoman in Denver. And so, uh, Jean, a few years after you graduated from Harvard, you and your husband, Frank, also a lawyer, moved to Boulder, you worked at several agencies specializing in social justice, and one of those jobs took you to the state capitol where you lobbied and worked on legislation and met a gentleman, a Democrat named Dick Lamb, who later became governor. In 1979, he named you to the state Supreme Court. What had changed in the political climate that allowed a woman to be appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court, given how difficult we heard the road was before then? Well, I think... Times were just beginning to change. 
Sandra Day O'Connor had not yet been appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. I was the 11th woman to serve on any Supreme Court in the country. But Dick Lamb had a wife who was very progressive and very interested in helping women break through into some areas where they'd never been able to serve before. This is Dottie, correct? This is Dottie. And I think it was the beginning of change. Colorado now for a long time has had three women on its Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has three women. I hope we're not stuck at three, but it seems to me that I was lucky and was around at the right time when things really began to change. Susan, um, how the justice finds out that she's been tapped to serve on the state Supreme Court is a bit anticlimactic, as you tell it in the book. Is it, as I tell it? Well... It's 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 just a, it's a simple phone call. There's... It's a very simple phone call, and uh, the process uh, was very complex at the time. And uh, a judicial commission had to recommend to the governor, and he'd been under a lot of pressure to appoint a woman uh, then. And um, he was waiting for a good woman's name to come to him. And when he got it, he didn't continue the usual process, which is having the three top choices come back in for an interview. And he just picked up the phone and said, we're doing it, and we're doing it tomorrow. And uh, uh, as Jean uh, tells it, um, she was kind of shocked. She was loading laundry from the washer to the dryer and answered the phone on a Friday afternoon, and that was it. And she had no one to tell. Um, And then the next morning, uh, he made it public. And I think he was, as he told me, he didn't want much time to go by in case there was any kind of uproar. Ah. Um, I had to chuckle when you cited the Denver Post story about Jean's appointment. Jean E. Dubofsky, 37, a Denver attorney who considers herself a feminist, was appointed as the first woman justice in the state's history. Considers herself a feminist seems, I don't know, just a bit archaic, Jean, would you say? Well, perhaps. I remember being asked the question, was I a feminist? And then one of the Uh, reporters who was sitting in front of me said, maybe we should start over again. But that was the the lead in the post. That was the first question at the press conference. But you have to to step back into what the times were back then. Being a feminist was almost as bad as being a communist in the 50s. Uh, That that word was charged. uh, Were radicals. uh, Because a feminist, you know, was a woman who wanted to have the same kinds of rights and potential as men. And that was not a common, a commonly shared opinion at the time. So, Jean Dubofsky, you served on the state Supreme Court until 1988, went back into private practice. And in 1990, we get the beginnings of a controversy and what became a landmark lawsuit over gay rights in Colorado. Sue, so just briefly uh, set this up for us. Uh, I, uh, th- an amendment to the Constitution, um, the state constitution. a state constitution, uh, was passed in 1992, which was a very, very funny election year, much like today, um, that prevented cities and towns from including so, uh, sexual orientation to be uh, a protected, a protect, protected from discrimination. Um, and this amendment would stop cities and towns like Denver and Boulder that had ordinances. Uh, and... Um, this is Amendment 2. There was only one way to stop it once the voters voted for it, and that was to uh, take legal action. And it worked its way through two 
trials at the local level, two Supreme Court, Colorado Supreme Court trials, and then all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1995. It took three years to get to oral arguments at the court. Jean, in writing about this, Sue describes your role in the amendment to fight as quoting here a battle that would challenge uh, her like no other. Why? Well, first of all, if we had lost that lawsuit, it would have diminished equal protection, not just for the GLBT community, but also for all civil rights. And that was a pretty weighty kind of thing to take on. Mm. And I had never argued or had a case in the U.S. Supreme Court. So that was an additional problem. And finally, like almost all major issues, there were so many different views as to what the right way was to approach the case that I had lots and lots of help and lots and lots of advice, but lots of contrary opinions. And sometimes they would say, well, if you're going to do that, then you shouldn't handle this case. What was the angle going to be on the legal argument? And and briefly, what did you insist that it be? I insisted that we stay focused on defeating Amendment 2. The national gay rights community wanted to have a case that would resolve all the unresolved issues like gays in the military, overturning... Um, the uh, Bowers versus Hardwick case, which had upheld criminalization of gay sex and um, gay marriage. And my theory was we couldn't do all of that at once. And indeed, you were successful before the U.S. Supreme Court. Were you nervous during oral arguments? Well, I think you worry about it, but I got my opponent got a first question that told me that I thought we had the fifth vote to go our way. So I relaxed at that point and thought, okay, just don't make any mistakes. And so you see that decision 20 years ago now as pivotal to a lot of cases, a lot of decisions, a lot of issues today. Yes, all of those other issues eventually got resolved on a case-by-case basis. You know, Ryan, if there were no Romer v. Evans... We would not have had Lawrence, we would not have had Windsor, and we would not have um, same-sex marriage today. It started the role uh, for justice for gays and lesbians. What was it like after Amendment 2 passed in Colorado? I just want to give listeners a sense for what the political um, environment was at the time of its passage. It, It was chaos. There was anger. There were protests in the streets. People in Colorado could not imagine that they would have voted for something uh, that was so anti-discriminatory. Anti, it was so discriminatory. We were not that kind of state. Uh, there was a national boycott launched. We were called the hate state. Uh, the, the political leaders were um, in an uproar over what to do to, you know, calm the situation. It was. It was just an awful, awful time, and awful in in particular for gays and lesbians who felt threatened again, um, threatened with violence, threatened threatened with losing their jobs. It was was a, a, a terribly tumultuous time. I suppose this is a question for you, Sue, as the biographer, but I'm actually going to put it to Justice Dubofsky. Why do you think your story is important to tell now? I mean, I wonder, having read the book, if you have some sense of the the place your story occupies today. Well, I think it was a story of how far women have come, probably even more than it was a story of the Amendment 2 case. And I think, in a very sad way, it shows 
how we can come a long ways and then maybe everything will turn back again. We could lose a lot of the rights that um, women and the GLBT community are now taking for granted. And that, I think, is frightening. I had thought we'd come a long ways with a lot of work, and it can all be taken away. Jean Dubofsky, former Colorado Supreme Court justice and who successfully argued a landmark gay rights case before the U.S. Supreme Court decided 20 years ago. We heard also from Sue Casey, a former Denver City Councilwoman uh, who wrote Dubofsky's biography. It's called Appealing for Justice, and you can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. Coming up, the story of a Boulder motorcycle daredevil. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You've probably heard of Evil Knievel, but what about Evil Cheesy? It's the stage name of a motorcycle daredevil from Boulder named Terry Cheesebro. His time in the limelight in the 1970s didn't last long. In the new film Evil Cheesy Rides Again, filmmakers Jack Hanley and Chris Lysing set out to tell Cheesebro's story and capture one final jump. And to Jack, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having us, Ryan. You start the film with what was probably Evil Cheesy's highest profile stunt. Set it up for us. Uh, exactly. Um, that was really at the apex of Terry's career at that point. Um, gone were just the um, handmade capes and the uh, small motorcycle assemblage. This was done in front of thousands of people. It made um, national press at the time. And he was in full white regaled clothing, professional cape, and um, was his largest jump to date. And what did that consist of? What was large? <laughs> well, primarily the crowds. I mean, this is, um, considering this is someone who came from Boulder streets and used to do illegal street jumping that used to maybe bring out all the patrons of the local bar to suddenly be thrust into making the AP wire for your jump uh -huh. um, and having thousands of people show up. Um, it, was, it was quite a spectacle for Boulder at that time. And what was the jump itself? Uh, he was jumping over a large number of Ford Pintos as uh, crafted <laughs> by Arnold Brothers Ford. <laughs> But by a car dealership. Correct. It was sponsored by the car dealership. So. Okay. And where where would the landing be? The landing was in water, which is also unique to um, to Evil's career. Um, he liked to specifically jump over large items and in, land in large bodies of water. So although there are old home movies of Evil Cheesy, there aren't many audio recordings where you can hear his voice back in the day. Here is a rare clip of him being interviewed just before this big jump over the line of cars. For the 67-foot jump, any uh, thoughts come into your mind? Well, not really, just uh, the water's there and I'm going to land there. A 67-foot jump, if you heard that there. I'm going to save as a cliffhanger how the jump went, and I want you to tell us about how Evil Cheesy got his start. Absolutely. And as a little side note there, the person you hear interviewing Terry in that clip, is, and of course that's vintage cheesy answer, is actually um, Rick Riley, who went on to work for ESPN, a Boulder native. The sports writer, yes, that's right. indeed. And that's him interviewing him at the time. So how did Evil Cheesy start in stunts? Well, you know, is this something he actually began doing when he was still in middle school? Um, there were accounts from all of his friends that they would skip class. He would find um, garbage cans to set up um, 
proffer a small bike that wasn't his and then proceed to try to jump over things to impress his classmates. That's initially how everything began, um, quite daringly, and then started to escalate after that. He began to be a fixture around Boulder in the early 1970s as someone who did wheelies down in front of the courthouse, liked to taunt police, um, okay. tried to begin doing stunts that he felt would draw attention. And um, his signature move was to announce this by spray painting on the sides of public buildings or on walls that he would be performing a stunt. And initially it started like that. And the jump that we set up in the beginning there, which is kind of sanctioned and a PR campaign, those really weren't most of his jumps. Most of his jumps were these smaller, I guess, illegal jumps. Oh, absolutely. In fact, and a lot of them just stemmed from a bunch of guys hanging around a bar and deciding... Let's go make some trouble today in Boulder. And they basically swarmed out, um, did a makeshift ramp on site, would assemble things to try to jump over down in the street, block off sections of the street illegally. He would perform a jump impromptu. And then um, while people hustled him away to the safety of the bar to escape the onslaught of police that would show up, we've had reports where even um, female patrons of the bar would arrive and form a line, lift their tops to try to blockade the police from getting at him. But initially, that's how most of these jumps started. Was he compensating for something, do you think? You know, um, we certainly believe so. I don't know that um, evil, <laughs> thinking back, would actually admit to that. Um, but yes, he had um, – he was, he was adopted um, and uh, was an orphan originally. So he was adopted early on and that kind of shaped his identity a bit. And he also had a very pronounced limp which um, early on was the subject of much tormenting in and around from both his time period and just um, you know being in Boulder at that time. And so I think he absolutely – crafted this identity, this superhero origin story of Evil Cheesy to make up for um, Terry, who was somewhat nondescript, had a limp, and wasn't very popular. So why did he stop jumping? Uh, There's actually a perfect storm of factors that contributed to that. Um, Firstly, on his very last jump, and not many people know this at all, he actually crushed his sternum whenever he landed into the water. This is the jump we were talking about. Correct. And while in the hospital, he was informed by doctors, if you hit or land hard, rather, again, there's a very real possibility it could kill you. So that was a factor that started to weigh in. Now, he was um, freshly married at the time. So his wife um, was very adamant that we're about to start a family. Um, You can't do this forever. Maybe it's time to play house, move away from this, walk away from the limelight. Both of those factors, I think, were very important in, in evil trying to, to, to make a family life for himself. But lastly, it was also the city of Boulder itself at that time. While it started off very popular and being very grassroots, rebellious 1970s freewheeling Boulder. As it came toward the end, there were forces in the newly changing identity of Boulder that didn't really want Terry's kind doing this type of thing any longer. So when he did that jump over the cars and into the water, what happened? What do you know happened? Uh, well, um, as far as like, well, when he landed, first of all, he, it was a kind of a humorous take on that because he hit the water at such an angle and, of course, was immediately injured. But because he had a long, brand new cape at the time, he almost drowned at that jump, again, which not many people realize. In fact, the first one, he was floundering in the water, drowning before anyone could figure out as they were still cheering the jump being successful. In fact, it was a dog that first jumped to his rescue and began swimming out toward him before one of his friends came out and plucked him out of the water as well. We have posted photos. It's cprnews.org of evil cheesy jumping and shots of him nearly drowning when he tangled in his cape. You were bartending Jack in Boulder when you first met Terry. 
This is Terry Cheesebro and heard his story. It was a long way from his motorcycle jumping days. Alcoholism had ruined his marriage and his career as a plumber. His wife left him, taking their three kids with her. Terry was in his late 50s when you started filming, and he was on, on the decline in many ways. Um, what, what happened? Yeah. Um, and I was actually bartending at the time, putting my way through grad school over there and bartending on Pearl Street when I began always noticing out the window this lone scarecrow-like long bearded figure that would just be wandering the streets. Um, it was a very prominent limp wandering about. But what astonished me at the time, um, not having known this man, was that every single one of my patrons or every single person in the restaurant and bar, w- upon seeing him, would begin shouting out, you know, evil or, you know, hit the glass or honk their car horn. So I just became fascinated by this lonely man wandering about who everyone seemed to know, yet no one really wanted to be a part of. Oh. And that first um, brought me on board to try to say, I have to befriend this man and learn his story and understand what his place was in Boulder. History. And you learned that he had dementia. Um, not at first. And see, initially, um, our film, whenever I first when I first met him, he was just basically wandering about having been 86 out of every single drinking establishment in Boulder pretty much by this time, um, just rambling about how he had built a bike in private. It was being secreted in a shed behind his house, and he was prepared to make his comeback that would astonish Boulder. So initially, when we... It sounds like the perfect film, <laughs> right? right? Exactly, exactly. For both my um, my Chris, my filmmaking partner, we were like, okay, this is going to be an amazing, um, uh, what do you call it, a capturing of an amazing moment in Boulder's history to see this moment of triumph. What we didn't know at the time was um, his early onset dementia as a result of alcohol abuse, and um, his that he would actually never get on a bike again. So that reveals itself slowly as you start the project. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News, and we're talking about the new film Evil Cheesy Rides Again. It's about a motorcycle daredevil who became famous in Boulder during the 70s. Boulder filmmaker Jack Hanley is here, and I want to bring in his cinematographer and his director. That's Chris Lysing. Chris, what was it like to be filming Terry as dementia set in? It was difficult because uh, we went into it with a, a whole thing in mind and it, it all kind of fell to pieces when we started shooting and we realized that I would have to kind of embed myself in the nursing home psych ward where he was in uh, to kind of capture any last remnants that might come out of Terry. Um, and then that sort of spun us off into – figuring out how to kind of tell this story. Right, because it wouldn't be primarily through him. Right, because he has no voice. And so we needed to find people who knew him, who kind of represented him, who represented Old Boulder, who could sort of uh, be his voice. And so, you know, these different characters sort of represent the the id of Evil Cheesy. Um, His daughter, April, I think is among those voices. And we have a clip of April Mitchell and her children speaking with Terry Cheesebro, Evil Cheesy, at the nursing home. This is around Christmas time. It's a Christmas. I got you some Christmas lights. Maybe we should hang them up in your room. What do you think? No. No? No, 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 no. What if I do it anyway? Yeah, man. You need a ladder to get them up there, man. Yeah, man. Did he still have a sense of himself as evil cheesy, Jack? 
That is what the remarkable thing is. It, and as, as Chris um, pointed out beautifully early on, the, the strange difficulty was suddenly finding ourselves having to make a documentary about a protagonist with no voice at all. And um, we began struggling to try to find a way of how to tell that. But yes, he always maintained that identity for himself. In the end, this is a really a story about construction of identity. And um, there's many different layers of people who know him as evil, the stunt jumper, or the son of, of, of the Cheeseboro family, the plumbing family in Boulder, um, or just Terry the man. But what we found fascinating is that um, Terry crafted this persona of evil cheesy as a way to be something better than he felt any of those others' names represented him. And to the end, he still clung to the fact that he was evil cheesy. He wouldn't respond to Terry. He wouldn't respond (laughs) to anything else. He was evil cheesy. Chris, you do this really beautiful visual layering of modern day shots, sort of ghosted with images of found footage. Where did you look for images of this man? So we we were fortunate enough to get archival 8mm footage from the Cheeseboro family from April and his brother Tim. Which has that beautiful warmth, you know. Oh, yeah. And and I was actually fortunate enough to shoot in the Cheeseboro house, the house where uh, Terry Cheeseboro grew up, uh, the day before it was sold. So that footage going through at the beginning is the day before it got sold to another owner. And so, um, yeah, you know, we kind of just wanted to flesh out this space, you know, and, um, and it's a, a meditation in many ways on old Boulder, isn't it? Yes, it most certainly is. Absolutely. Um, we kind of had a, it's a funny metaphor for that, that evil kind of represented both the cowboy and Indian, both in his own construction and how people remember him. Um, he's a, uh, Right. He was a, a man that's considered to be kind of like the last remnant, the blue collar cowboy of old Boulder that suddenly finds himself without a country to be rebellious in anymore. But at the same time, um, other people referred to him as, as a quote we use as an, not wanting to ever be an Indian, only wanting to be a chief. And um, or no, not, he was an Indian, but he didn't like the chief. Right. Right. So, so he always just kind of defined himself by setting himself apart and kind of moving away from everything that Boulder represented toward the end. A rebel, maybe with a cause. <laughs> sure. So he doesn't jump again. Um, right. And he he died this summer, Terry Cheesebro. Yes. Did a lot of people turn out to mourn him? Um, I, I was surprised. Probably not as many as um, I expected. But then again, Terry lived a very controversial life. And um, I think that's, again, that's all in that framing of truly what makes up a person um, who defines our story toward the end and how we choose to be remembered. And so I think that part of his legacy is so stained that many people stayed away. Sure. You really made this this film at a powerful time in his life. And and, and if you had waited, I suppose, Chris, it would have been too late. Yeah. No, I, I think so. Um, it was important, I think, that we – that the events happened as they did. Um, Terry dying, I think it gave us some closure – Right. I mean, obviously, but, I mean, to, to tell this story, I mean, yeah, it could have it could have been almost um, a story without an ending otherwise. And I, I don't want to make light of Absolutely. his death by any means. No, but that, that's exactly right. And what also kind of made it both um, tragic and beautiful simultaneously for us was that the entire time Terry was committed to the nursing home, not being allowed to leave, he still would try to pace about and escape and get to his bike to jump again. Um, until his passing, he truly believed he was going to Rebuild. return to Boulder hmm. and jump again. 
You heard there Boulder filmmakers Jack Hanley and Chris Lysing. Evil Cheesy Rides Again premieres at Chautauqua Community House in Boulder tomorrow night at 7. Again, we've posted film clips and photos at cprnews.org. Coming up, the 10-year-old Colorado boy who just pitched investors on Shark Tank. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ten-year-old Jack Bonneau of Broomfield is in the lemonade business, but not just a single stand. Jack's franchise has grown to seven locations across Denver, and he says he's on track to break a million dollars in sales next year. But he needs more capital. So he went on ABC's Shark Tank to meet investors and had to answer some tough questions. Let's get serious now, because $50,000 is not a small amount of money. I love the story. I love entrepreneurs, but I want them to be full-time when I invest in them. I don't want you to drop out of school. I want you to finish your education, then come back to me. Jack and his father, Steve, are back with an update. They join my colleague, Nathan Heffel. Jack, Steve, welcome back to the program. Hi, thank you for having me, Nathan. On uh, Shark Tank, entrepreneurs pitch ideas to wealthy investors like Mark Cuban, Chris Saka, uh, Barbara Corcoran. Jack, what was it like facing the sharks in the Shark Tank? Man, it was amazing. Um, I had been watching the show for four or five years before that, and actually getting on it was just, like, unreal. Um, And... So and the, there was a lot of preparation that went into it, yeah. but it was definitely definitely worth it. Can we get a, an idea of your pitching skills? Uh, maybe tell us what Jack Stands and Marketplaces is all about. Sure. So um, my business is Jack's Marketplaces and Stands. Jack's um, Marketplaces is where I sell other young entrepreneurs' products and tell their inspirational stories. Jack's Stands is where I have. Six locations where I let other kids operate my stands. I'll teach them how to greet and serve the customer, how to make change, how to take credit card, and how to track their sales. And then at the end of the day, we go through a mini profit and loss statement to figure out the revenue, expenses, profit, and tips. Steve, you have quite a businessman, a business kid on on your hands. Talk about the the development of, of this company. It, it was all organic. It was based on Jack wanting the Lego Death Star and then the following year wanting to do it again, uh, but wanted to share his great experience with other kids. And then Jack was able to meet some young entrepreneurs through Young Americans Bank that had products, brought those products next to Jack's stand, and that grew Jack's marketplaces. And then just the, the only grand scheme is Jack would like to, you know, reach out for more kids and have this experience and, and share uh, what he knows. Jack, why expand from Lemonade? You're doing pretty well with that. Why go to to marketplaces? Well, um, for other young entrepreneurs, so over my second year, I um, was working with Young American Bank here in Denver, um, and I got to know some young entrepreneurs with their own products. And um, they really didn't have anywhere to sell them. Hmm. So I was like, hey, could I sell your products in a marketplace um, next to my stand? They said yes. And then at the end of my second year, I was invited down to Southwest Plaza Mall, where I got a 10 by 10 area where I could sell more young entrepreneurs' products or products. And then this holiday season, I've expanded my marketplace to Park Meadows, Flatirons, and Southwest Plaza Mall, along with my stands on the weekends. Now, the Sharks had some pretty tough questions for you, especially about your age. You're 10 years old. You're still a kid. You got homework. You got friends. And you're the owner of a very profitable business. Aren't you concerned that you're missing out on life, your childhood? 
Um, not really. Um, it's really all about a balance. Um, the farmer, um, the farmers markets are mostly on the weekends or in the evenings and on the summer. Um, but um, the malls are year round. But um, that's why we like to work with homeschool families and communities because um, they're always looking for educational experiences. They have the time, the flexibility, and um, also they um and um they can operate it when public schools are in session. I so. see. And, and talk a little bit about that, Steve. No, it's it's been a great experience for Jack to be able to work. As far as the, the balance of um, of his time, he has plenty of time with you know his video games and his friends. And we look at it; it's no different than you know being part of a sport. As far as you know, football or baseball. I mean, that's time commitments, and uh, that's the same as Jack. And you're looking to expand outside of of Colorado. Where are you looking at going? Um, so we're looking at um, going to d- downtown Detroit, Michigan, and also New Orleans. We have some contacts there, so um, that can um, get uh, so that can help us get a marketplace and stand. But we're also um, looking for more um, more um, places and marketplaces and malls here in Colorado. Um, dozens and dozens of families actually have asked um, if they could have a marketplace or stand out in their area across the United States. So would you? oversee all that or would you maybe be looking for a co-CEO maybe someone your age in Detroit or, or New Orleans yes that that's exactly what I um, want to happen Actually, I have. Um, there's a great um, story. Um, sh- um, Aubrey and her sister Rylan Roberts. Um, so they were operating my Southwest Plaza Mall location, selling apple cider and hot chocolate in the holiday season. They did so well, I encouraged them to go to my marketplace. Through this, they got inspired and created their own products, and now they have their products in my marketplaces. Aubrey is now the manager of the Southwest Plaza Mall location, doing everything that I am, teaching them about entrepreneurship, business financial literacy, and all of that. And how old is, is she? She's only 12 years old. Okay, so very close to age as you. Uh, now, Chris Saka, uh, one of the, the sharks, gave you an offer for a $50,000 loan to expand. But there are a few conditions. Uh, there's 2% interest. You can only withdraw $10,000 at a time. And you must start a video blogging channel of some sort. Those are some pretty stiff conditions. Uh, how do you plan to, to meet all of that? Well, um, I... I, I, I'm I'm sure that we can pay back the loan. I, I'm I'm really confident we can do that, and I'm really looking forward to sharing my experience with other kids and other young entrepreneurs on my own podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that. And two percent interest is a great deal. And, and on the show, you know, one of the sharks said, "Though you you may have taken a bad deal." Take a listen, Jack. If you take that deal, you'll be the most in debt nine year old I know. <laughs> <laughs> now. Put aside the fact that he got your age wrong. You're 10 years old. With your other loans, you you do have that $50,000 in debt. How are you going to pay for that? Well, um, the way I'm going to pay for that, I'm just going to um, keep um, growing my business and working with other young entrepreneurs and kids, um, exposing them to entrepreneurship. Um, so, yeah, just um, keep working with my business. And, and Steve, will you be alongside him for that? Oh, certainly. And like Chris said, as far as every 10K drawdown, Jack's got to put together a use of proceeds and how that's going to be paid back. And, and that's part and parcel to what Jack's doing already. Now, final question here. Are you still asking your, your parents for birthday presents or can you simply buy them all yourself now? <laughs> um, I can buy some myself, but still, um, um, they, they can still get me some. I'm, I'm still fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the both of you and Jack. Best of luck. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thank you.
Ten-year-old Jack Bonneau of Broomfield is founder and CEO of Jack's Stands and Marketplaces. With the help of his father, Steve, he has plans to expand beyond Colorado. They spoke with Nathan Heffel. Jack and his business were featured on ABC's Shark Tank. You can watch a video of Jack's pitch at cprnews.org. We'll be right back on Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado scientists are bathing toads to protect them from a deadly infection. That's the subject of today's beta test, our look at scientific advances in our state. Disease biologist Valerie McKenzie of CU Boulder has published a study about this new treatment. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. These are boreal toads, and they've been dying off in the last few decades, haven't they? Yeah, they have. It's really um, it's really an, a, a disturbing problem. The boreal toad used to be really common throughout the Rocky Mountain region up at high elevation. So this is a special toad that's adapted to live at high elevation. And yeah, they've been suffering infection with a fungal pathogen that is causing their populations to decline very rapidly. And this is not unique to the boreal toad in the Rocky Mountains. This is happening to amphibians across the world. It's fungal, so that means it's on their skin? Yes, that's right. This is a fungal pathogen that um, has a stage that can move through the water, and then it attaches to the toad's skin and starts to replicate and disrupt the skin. And the skin is really important for amphibians. That's where they get gas exchange and... Um, their skin is very sensitive. So when the skin is disrupted, it can really cause problems. And so what kills them? Is it a kind of suffocation? That's right. Yeah. They, they're, um, when their skin becomes massively infected, it's shedding, um, and they're not able to osmotically balance. So they're not able to move water and electrolytes and the things they need um, into their bodies. Osmotically, that is like osmosis. Yeah. That's right. Are they in danger of extinction? So locally in Colorado, yes. So this is a wide-ranging species that is throughout um, sort of the Western North America, but there are um, different sort of subspecies. And this one in the Southern Rocky Mountains in Colorado and into Utah, they are in big trouble, yes. Describe what they look like. I think you call them handsome. Is that true? (laughs) Yeah. I think they're very handsome. They're... um, they're toadish, so they have uh, warty skin, but they're, the backs are sort of black with warty bumps, and they are very stout. They look like a little bulldog. If you, if you were to compare, you know, if a dog breed was a toad, this would be the bulldog <laughs> of toads. Um, but they're, their bellies are creamish colored, and they have little mottling spots, and you can tell I, different individuals based on their spot patterns on their bellies. You have been treating them with their own bacteria. And it's essentially a bacteria bath. How did you come across this? Yes. So, um, yes, we've been studying the bacteria that naturally live on these toads, as well as other amphibians, uh, for a while now. And a colleague of mine, uh, Reed Harris, discovered that some bacteria living on amphibians can inhibit this fungal pathogen that causes declines in these amphibians. And so I wanted to study whether there were any of those kinds of bacteria present in our local system in the boreal toads, and we found one. Um, this bacteria is called Janthinobacterium lividum, and we like to call it JLIV for short. JLIV, okay. Yes, JLIV. Uh, JLIV, when it grows in culture in a Petri dish, it produces uh, a purple metabolite. So you get these big violet blooms of these bacteria. It's really it's really a beautiful bacteria. Um, when it's growing on the toad, it's at lower 
quantity, so you don't see that as purple, but in culture, it's purple. And so the idea is to develop these in culture, and then, I guess, with this kind of purple rain, uh, bathe the toads and boost their immune systems externally. Is that a way that I could put it? Yes, definitely. So... The idea is that if we can take a bacteria that can naturally protect these toads that's naturally found in their system and increase it on their skin, provide them more protection um, and help them through this window of infection. Because if, if they can beat the infection, they might be able to have a shot at developing some immunity. Um, so, yeah. And we like to call this project Purple Rain because, uh, well, first of all, in honor of the late great prince. Yes. But also... Uh, because we're putting these lovely purple bacteria, raining it down on the toads for, for good luck. Is the rise of this this potentially deadly fungus a climate change thing? That's a great question. So um, the rise of this fungus is one of these complex things that has happened um, because of many factors. Climate is probably involved in worsening the problem, but. Evidence is pointing towards um, that this fungus is a novel pathogen that may have evolved as a result of hybridization of multiple strains of the fungus from different parts of the world that have been brought close together because of globalization and because of human movement of things. And so uh, people play a role in this, you're saying. And does this mean that you now have a project of going and brushing or bathing hundreds of thousands of toads? Is that what your future looks like? (laughs) <laughs> I wish I could do that many. Um, yeah, we, it is, it is uh, tricky to catch every single individual out there and provide this treatment. So, right. so at each site, we try to capture as many as we can. And so we just did our first field trial this summer in 2016 um, with the great help of the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, and what does it look like? So the treatment? You, yeah. Do you go out with a, a little paint bucket or something? <laughs> we actually, yeah, we um, we put them in little plastic sterile sort of like sandwich containers. Um, and so the, the life stage of the toads that we're treating are the little metamorphs. These are just after they've switched from becoming tadpoles and metamorphosed into little toadlets. So they're small. They're the size of your thumb tip. Um, so we can put many of them in a little sandwich container and pour the bath of the bacterial inoculation around them. So they're literally sitting in a bath of the bacteria. For how long? Uh, overnight, usually about overnight. 12 hours. All right. And then they're re-released. Yes. But in this case, we were um, uh, keeping them in, ca- in captivity in the field in, in sort of larger little terrariums that we created to monitor them for some time and be able to collect a few samples from them by brushing a swab across their skin uh, after the treatment, to make, to the first step is to see if this treatment will stick on them in the field. Yeah, and w- w- what's the promise? Is there? A, do you hold out much hope? I do. If if this, so in our lab studies, what we've seen is that toad survival can increase by forty percent with this treatment, and we we think we've optimized this treatment by treating the metamorphic life stage to perhaps increase above forty percent survival, and so. If in the field, if we can treat these toads and 40% of them will do better with the pathogen than previously, then yes, I say that's a big improvement. Why your focus on toads? <laughs> well, uh, because I live here in Boulder in Colorado and work at the University of Colorado. These are the toads that are in my backyard, literally. And so um, these are the ones that I can help Um they're, they're heavily endangered in the state of Colorado. And it's something I can do locally. And um in my lab, we work on amphibians from different parts of the world, but this is my local one that I want to champion. Will you be looking for bathing volunteers? <laughs> P- 
people you mean or toads? Yes. Oh, I, well, <laughs> I guess both, but I mean people, like, you know, who are going to have to go out there and do this. Yeah. So I've had... Um, my lab group is um, a fantastic group of researchers, and everyone's been excited to volunteer. And one of my graduate students, Jordan Kuhneman, just completed his PhD dissertation on this topic, and he's done a lot of fantastic work and moved this field forward hugely. Uh, but you can't say yet if you need volunteers to do bathing of toads. <laughs> well, um, I would love volunteers, but I will have to train them and give them the proper um, protocols so that they can do it safely. Okay. Thanks for being with us, Valerie. Thank you very much. It's Valerie McKenzie. She is a disease biologist at CU Boulder. We talked about a new probiotic treatment for toads. It's part of Beta Test, a regular look at scientific exploration in Colorado. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. <laughs> 